Hi, good morning. Good afternoon, good evening. How the hell are ya? It's Chef Michael here, and we are back for another episode of The Talk. And as you know, we get to dive in a little bit deeper into the food industry, diet culture, weight loss, keto, all kinds of things, and get real about it. I am not interested in the fluff. I want to dive in deep, have those difficult discussions, and that's what this podcast is for. So if you guys have been enjoying the series so far, uh, please stick with me. We got some awesome episodes coming up, and you can find more information at chefmichael.com com slash podcast that's chef michael.com slash podcast and if you're really enjoying this you can join me over at patreon for our bonus episodes where i actually dive in just me you in the camera and talk a little bit more about what was discussed on the episode kind of get my honest thoughts and feelings and you could do so by becoming a member again that is at patreon.com slash podcast no no Patreon.com slash Chef Michael. Back to you, Mike. And for just a few dollars a month, you could get all that bonus content, some free stuff, plus you get to support me a little bit. So if you've been enjoying this, every dollar really does count. <laughs> I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Redmond Real Salt, for providing support for this podcast. That whole relationship started because I really use Redmond salt every single day. Uh, you guys already know. If you watch my Instagram, you definitely know because I like always have it next to my stove. It really does just kind of taste awesome and work really well in cooking. But almost like more important than that is the fact that it is 100% natural. It's made here in the U.S. Got really nice quality to it. It's from an actual dried up ancient seabed and they just kind of mine it out and it's packed with all these um, micronutrients and trace minerals. So when we're talking about keto and we talk about the value of getting in our electrolytes, this is definitely, definitely the way to do it because when you're cooking with this salt, you're getting in those electrolytes through your diet, which is the best way. Um, that said, you can go to redmond.life to place an order that's redmond.life slash Chef Michael for 15, not slash, what am I talking about? Redmond.life with a discount code <laughs> of Chef Michael for 15% off. Don't go to redmond.life slash Chef Michael, it won't go anywhere. Uh, but place your order at redmond.life uh, with the discount code of Chef Michael for 15% off. You can also pretty much anywhere find Redmond salt at the grocery store, which is really cool. Uh, pretty much nationwide, you can just go down your spice aisle and find their salt. The difference is on the website, they got tons of other products as well. Um, and also like larger sizes if you want salt in bulk, but they have like everything. They have electrolyte supplements, they have um, toothpaste, face masks, beauty products, all kinds of stuff that's all made with these awesome sea salts. So definitely check that out. And now our guest today, very interesting author, writer, and uh, and just a really, really uh, studied human being in the field of health and nutrition. His name is Chris Irvin, but he goes by the ketologist. So I'm going to welcome him up here. Hi, Chris. It looks really cool, though, man. It just looks super clean. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah a little dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I didn't like have anywhere pretty to like make a set. So I was like, we'll, uh, we'll figure this out. My producer, Dan, who's cool, funny enough, he'll, he'll hear us talking about him, but he is the one who really helped me get this set up. I'm not this creative. He got all the lighting right and he's awesome. Nice. You need somebody to take care of all of that for you. Yeah, it's not my forte. I mean, I'll cook lunch for us, but I'm <laughs> not going to set up the cameras. Right. It's not your, not your strength, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and now is this your first time record? Is this first episode? No, 
Well, I don't know. I don't know how they'll be aired. I think this is episode 11 or 12. Nice. And then that week in Texas with like the shutdown, I like I had a bunch of people scheduled that week. I don't know if you were one of them. I don't even remember because there was so much chaos, but that threw off the production schedule as well. Dude, how are you Um, doing with all that? Is everything back to normal now? Yeah, everything's back to normal. And I was like pretty lucky not to have any damage to my house. I was so worried about it because our house is brand new. And so I was like the idea of it like flooding was like Mm -hmm. not easy. Um, But we stayed with a friend who had um, like a fireplace. So I stayed warm and was able to cook on their gas stove and like made a bunch of good food. So I can't complain. There's people who had it a lot worse. So I'm definitely grateful. Our house was fine. Once we got the heat back, everything was fine. So. Yeah, so you sound like the right guy to be uh, cooped up with during something like that, making good food. Not, for not a bad deal. <laughs> yeah, not a bad deal. Um, it was it was just like rough to have to like leave your house in a hurry and bring your animal. Right. Like I had to bring the dog and the cat to somebody else's house, and like they have dogs and cats, so I had to like lock them in the guest room. It was like yeah, just like four days of like kind of like camping in somebody else's house by the fires. It wasn't yeah. ideal. Right. Well, glad it's back to normal, man. It sounds like you guys should have some warm weather coming your way and summer will be there. It's all, yeah, it's beautiful already. That was just so unlikely. It's usually like, it's like the weather in Florida for us. Like, I mean, it's like seventies this week. You you know, from living here, like it's not usually that cold. No. I mean, the two years I lived there, the coldest it got down to was thirties. Like we had a couple days below freezing. Especially like late at night in the winter, you get a couple like deep drops. Yeah. Um, it's crazy to see what you got. I mean, all that snow and everything. It's just, I mean, it shows you like state like that's just not set up for something like that. Yeah. There's just no infrastructure. My sister lives in Florida. So I was like kind of joking with her, like what would happen in, in Miami if like out of nowhere, <laughs> you know, like it would be a fucking shit show. <laughs> People lose their minds if it gets down to like 60 degrees. And I know, Florida, I, know I know, I know, I know, I <laughs> know. Um, but that's kind of what happened, you know, like it, the whole system just broke. Like it just, there's just no infrastructure for it. So we'll see. I, I, I don't know if Texas will actually do anything about this in reality. Like, you know, when like the politics of it dies down in six months, they'll probably just like quietly, like it's like that gif of like Homer Simpson going into the bush. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like just kind (laughs) of like hide back, like forget about it. Um, yeah, we'll see. It's kind of true, though. I mean, what do you do? Like, is that really something that you plan for? Like, it's something that happens once every, in, you know, in a blue moon, like 70, 50, 70 really... years. Yeah. Right. Like, you're going to put that much effort and money into resources to prevent it if it's not going to happen for another 50, 70 years. Kind of tough. Like, probably some other bigger right. fish to fry in Texas than that. Maybe or maybe not. I mean, that, that it's exactly true, though, because these these energy companies, because they're all privatized, would have to come out of pocket like millions in order to actually, wow. you know, winterize properly. So, like, yeah. is the private industry really going to do that without like state funds coming in or something? Probably not. No, they were just that, that's why I'm saying I think they'll duck. They'll just duck back and uh, and Homer Simpson back into the bush. Right. Like, hope, hope that <laughs> next year it doesn't that. snow again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody in Austin will forget that this ever happened. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, Chris, I want to welcome you here. Um, obviously, we've spoken on your podcast before. We've spoken in general. Um, I, you know, I, I gave a little introduction before I popped you onto the onto screen. But um, you're a researcher, you're an author, um, and I believe you're a master of nutrition or nutritional practitioner. T- tell me just your title because I don't want to screw it up. No, you're right. Uh, well, first off, thank you for having me on the, the podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh, always love getting to connect with you. 
And uh, so, yeah, I have a master's in nutrition. It was actually exercise and nutrition science, um, but I really more focused on the nutrition side. And, and since grad school, I've also more put my focus on that nutrition side. Perfect. So I got it like kind of right. I didn't butcher right. it. But. <laughs> the nutrition guy, the guy that reads about nutrition. That's good enough. Sure, sure. <laughs> So, so let's dive in a, bit, a little bit. Um, you have uh, a really awesome book out. I just want to give you a chance to share it um, and maybe it'll kind of inspire some conversation because you know, uh, with these podcast episodes, I do not come here with a plan because I kind of mm-hmm. think it's fun to live on the wild side and just see where this goes while Love recording it. live. Um, and so, yeah, talk to me a little bit about your book and then um, and we'll go from there. Sounds good. Yeah. It's just like a little hangout that everybody gets to listen to later, right? Um yeah, no, so the, the book Keto Answers, that was written by uh, Dr. Anthony Gustin and myself. It's been out for just over like a year and a half now. We, we published it in, mm. I believe it was September of 2019. And um, it was, you know, first book that I've gotten a chance to write. And um, it was something that, you know, we put it together. When I first started working for Perfect Keto, Dr. Gustin came to me and said, you know, hey, I'm getting these same questions all of the time about keto. I feel like my, you know, my uh, direct message inbox on Instagram is just the same questions over and over and over. We just, we really need to create, and, he's, and he said, you know, I'm sure you're probably seeing the same thing. I'm like, yeah, I get, you know, net carbs, should, you know, can I have too much protein? What's the optimal ketone level? All of those things. And um, so, you know, we really wanted to create a resource that would just kind of distill everything into one location, kind of be a trusted resource where people could go to to get their questions answered without having to, you know, scroll the internet and find blog posts and then have to figure out if those blog posts are credible and, you know, see conflicting information and all of those things. So we decided to put together this resource called the Keto Answers book. And it's a little bit different from some other books out there. So rather than being like a traditional book that is just, you know, written front to back that can be read front to back, it's actually written in a Q&A format. So hmm. you can read it from front to back. And I'll talk about that kind of a little bit in a second. But um, what we did is we answered 275 of the most, I think it was 268 or something like that technically, but uh, you know, 270 some questions, uh, most commonly asked questions about the ketogenic diet. So, you know, you can use the book like an encyclopedia where you can flip to the back, you can look up a question, you know, say your question is, uh, how many net carbs can I have on keto? You can find the page, you can go read that. And, you know, most of the questions give a little short answer as well as a, a more in-depth long answer if you care to learn a little bit more about the science and the reasoning why behind that answer. Um, so, you know, a lot of people use it like like an encyclopedia. We, we hear a lot of use cases from, you know, coaches and practitioners and um, stuff like that, who they use this as a way to, hey, when their clients ask them a question, it's a quick little, hey, let me open up the book, find find what they say about this topic. Um, interesting. But one of the in- interesting things that we kind of did about with it uh, to make it interesting to read from front to back is that when we came up with the questions, what we did is we sat down and we interviewed people who were at different stages of their ketogenic journey. So we sat down and interviewed people who were, you know, hey, this is day one, they're just getting ready to start. What questions do they have? What are the questions that somebody who has been keto for six months, what questions do they have? And what's the questions that somebody who's been keto for two years, what are the questions do they have? And we kind of position the book to be a progression through that kind of journey. So when the beginning of the book is very the basics, kind of understanding, you know, ketosis and debunking, you know, the things about fat and, you know, debunking things about protein and that we don't need carbs and different things like that. And then as the book progresses, we get into a little bit more complex topics like, you know, supplements on keto or the different variations of keto or, you know, fasting and and keto for women. So 
Um, it really is, you know, it's this book that we've heard it be used a lot of different ways. Um, but, you know, the it seems to be that the, the most common way that it's used is for these people who are, you know, hey, I'm newer to keto or I have a lot of questions about keto. Uh, I need to get them answered. What's the resource to go to? And, and that's what we planned with this book. I I, <laughs> I get it, though, because it's like, you know, even now, I st- there's a lot of common questions that come up. Like frequently asked questions is definitely a, a thing in the keto space, because yeah. let's be honest, it's very confusing. Um even if you're not brand new to keto, I think there's so much information that just kind of swirls around the web. Um, and it's it it's hard to kind of sift through it. It's hard to kind of digest. Um, even for me as somebody, you know, like, what the hell do I know? I'm not a scientist. And so sometimes I find the information to be like either just like that you can find on the internet to be either like kind of dumbed down to a point that I don't get value from. Um, like just like a let's just say like a, an infographic that just says like, here are the, th- the things you should eat and here are the things you shouldn't eat. I'd like right. a little bit more of an understanding than that um, than sort of like a, a, a meme in essence. However, right. <laughs> um, I also like, I can't read a 42 page study from the Journal of Medicine or whatever, you know, like there has to be some middle ground here. Um, and I do get a lot of the same questions. So I think that's really cool that you've yeah. found a way to do it. And a part of that, the, uh, another thing I really liked about what you said is like, um, and as you were speaking and you said you had 270 something questions or whatever, I'm like, yeah, but those answers may not necessarily be the same for everyone. And they certainly won't be the same for everyone um, throughout their journey. Like my keto today is not like the keto that I started with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess like just to challenge you a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, how are you, because like, I have a firm belief that because of bioindividuality and and sort of just like who we are, um, not that there isn't a one size fits all model to keto. And I mm-hmm. and I doubt that your Q and A, given that there's that many questions, I doubt that that you approach it with this one size fits all mentality. But I think when you get into oversimplifying answers, like we see a lot of like these macros are what you need to be keto, right? Like mm-hmm. 70, 25, five in terms of like percents from your three major macronutrients or, um, you know, 20 net carbs, but for somebody else, like their body may be able to handle 40 net or 50 total or whatever. So, uh, how do you address that specifically in the book and, and kind of mm-hmm. how do you take information and allow it to have sort of definitive science-based answers, but that allow the understanding that they're not going to be universally applicable. Right. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and you're so right that like there is no one size fits all approach to nutrition, keto, uh, really anything in the health space. And, you know, this, this is something that we took into consideration when we wrote the book. And, you know, and the two things I would say is not only is there not a one size fits all approach to, to nutrition, but also nutrition is constantly changing. And, you know, I can say for, for both Dr. Mm-hmm. Anthony and I that we both are constantly looking for new learnings, right? Whether it's new learnings from research that is coming out there or new learnings from um, ourselves when we self experiment or from when we help other people. And, you know, for, for that reason, like a lot of, and there's even a chapter in the book that's on self-experimentation and, and how you can use self-experimentation to tailor your right. diet a little bit more specifically to you. So that, that's kind of one of the things that's in the book. But the reason why I say that is that, you know, we are, we're going to have to go back in time and, and fix up the book and add some things to the book and hmm. change our thoughts on some things as we evolve. You know, what, what that book is right now is it's our answers and our, our best information today as we know it. 
And you know, one of the, the cha- like one of the things that Dr. Gustin really challenged me with when I was writing the book was, you know, hey, like we need to make more uh, definitive statement. Like people want to know what our stance is on this. They want to know what our answer is. And so we were trying to achieve that, but while still also leaving the door open to say that, like, hey, this isn't always going to be you know, the same for everybody. So a lot of times throughout the book, as you read some questions, you know, a question like, uh, I gave the example of net carbs. So can you have net carbs or, or, you know, should you track net carbs or total carbs Mm -hmm. question in the book? So my answer to that in the book is kind of this longer approach answer where it's like, if you're new to keto, you should probably track total carbs for these reasons. But as you get adapted to keto, you can probably start adjusting to doing net carbs. So we really tried to answer the question with, a little bit of context, right? Not like a, you know, like you'll never see in the book where we'll say, hey, macronutrients should be this much or that you should use this formula to calculate whatever. Like all of it is, is, is there's more context to it, right? It's like, hey, if you, right. like in the book, I know there's a part where we talk about if you're stuck at a weight loss plateau, how, you know, decreasing your fat intake and increasing your protein intake can, you know, help kind of jumpstart your weight loss again. So rather than just making recommendations of, hey, everybody go on, you know, 60% fat, what we do is we say, hey, track your macronutrients, see where you're at currently, and then here's a plan for how to start shifting your macronutrients towards this more, you know, higher protein, lower fat approach. So different things like that. Um, I wouldn't say we hit the nail on the head on all of those. There's definitely some where you have to take a stance and, you know, especially when it comes to supplements where, you know, it'd be like, what's the recommended dose for this supplement? Sometimes you have to just do your best to to make a recommendation. Um, But we do try to incorporate it throughout. And, you know, like I said, the last chapter of the book, which was uh, one of my favorite chapters is the self-experimentation chapter. And it's all about, you know, teaching yourself to learn about your body and learn about your carb tolerance and, you know, how many carbs you can eat and stay in ketosis and, you know, how you can uh, adjust your macronutrients for different goals and, and, you know, how you can figure out what foods your body agrees with and which ones it doesn't. So that kind of was something that we put at the end of the book to, you know, round it all out and say, hey, this is going to be a little bit different for everyone. Right. And and I get that because I kind of have existed in self-experimentation. Right, right. Um, it, it's tricky, though, because I think, you know, I run into this, too, when people ask me questions and it's like, sometimes people want just to be told what to do, right? Like sometimes it's helpful for people to get a specific answer to a question. But the other side of that coin is that like often with a lot of these keto questions, I find like the answer is like, it depends. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like (laughs) nobody, it's not helpful to hear that, but it's also true. Um, it's so hard. Like people will write me like, I, you know, I've been doing keto and I did X, Y, and Z and I'm 30 days in and then blah, 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 blah. Like, what do I do now? And I'm like, well, that depends, you know, (laughs) Like there's there's a lot of context needed as well. There's a lot of factors that go into overall health and wellness. There's a lot of factors Mm -hmm. that go into weight loss, uh, body composition, fat loss. These things do not happen, um, in a very formulaic way. And like Mm -hmm. what works really well, like you could take another guy, another male that's exactly my age, height, weight, you know, and like, well, we'd probably see very different results or different macro requirements in order to see results. Um, Mm -hmm. How much of that do you think is, I I guess just to kind of pivot for a second, I've always sort of wondered this and I know there's like a whole topic around like epigenetics and all this kind of stuff, but like, Mm -hmm. If I said to you, like, I don't know, Chris, like maybe I'm just not 
meant to ever be thin you know maybe i'm just never gonna be a marathon runner you know i don't my family's not athletic you know maybe i'm just meant to be a big guy because i'm like some russian jew bear who's like never gonna be you know a stick okay right is that true and 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 if it is true we have two options when we have that information right because then it's like option one i just sort of go all right i'll just accept that I'll, i'll love myself for not being skinny like i'll love that and embrace that the other option is like do i force past my genetic weakness (laughs) you know so i guess just to kind of pivot the question since i have a lot of i feel like this is a question that i always wonder and so i'm Mm -hmm. proposed i don't know if this is addressed in the book but it's my question for you is like what's the deal with like my genetics uh because you see this the other side too like you see athletes or people who are like pumping at the gym and just like they can't get rid of their stick legs no matter how many leg days they have or whatever. Right. What are your beliefs around this? No, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. Like everybody, like we just said, everybody's body responds a little bit differently. And I think that, you know, I get questions like that a lot too. And, and I get a lot of just like the simple questions, like you said too, where like, you know, somebody will shoot you a message and say, should I fast with right. no other context, right? And you're like, well, <laughs> maybe like, what's your <laughs> right. goal? you know, like, And same thing with that question about like the genetics and stuff. I think that usually it requires to dig in to really find out because I think a lot of what has to to deal with, you know, how to optimize our nutrition is our nutrition history. So, you know, there's, of course, we know what the most opt, I wouldn't say we know, but we have an idea of what the most optimal diet should look like, but there's a path to get there. And, you know, some people, depending on where you're coming from nutritionally in your past, you have to take a different path to get to where you need to be. Right. And and I think that that's, it's something that takes a little bit of, of digging in to, to find out. And you ask about like, you know, the, the genetics and, and, you know, people maybe not responding or maybe not being able to achieve a certain type of, of body. That definitely could be the case. Um, you know, there are, there is such a difference of, of body types with your ectomorphs and your mesomorphs and, and endomorphs and things like that. Um, you know, body types that are just maybe a little bit more likely to carry higher body fat percentage or, you know, that are more likely to carry more muscle mass and be leaner. So there is a little bit of that to it. But I think most times and, you know, this isn't directed at you because it sounds like you kind of have this question a little bit, too. But most times when I do hear people ask this type of question, it's usually that they they haven't quite done it fully right yet. Like maybe they've done keto like they've done like, hey, I'm under 30 grams of carbs uh, I'm tracking my macros and I'm, you know, losing weight. Um, but, but there might not be, you know, eating whole foods. They might not be eating enough protein. They might not be, you know, incorporating resistance training. Uh, there could be a lot of things going on. Maybe they haven't really been doing it for that long. Maybe, you know, they were somebody who was at 45% body fat and over the last year they've gotten down to 25 and they're not happy that they don't have muscle, but it's like, Hey, it, that takes time, right? You got to get rid of you know, you got to get down to, to a new body fat set point before you can start, you know, putting on muscle mass and stuff like that. So there's usually a little bit more digging in that needs to happen. Um, the first thing that I usually ask people when they're, when they're in that situation, when they're saying, Hey, I've been doing keto for a while. Um, and I, or, or any diet, right. And, any diet, right. Yeah. You know, this isn't just doesn't apply to keto. This applies to anything where it's like, you know, Hey, I'm seeing results, but I just don't feel like I, I've either plateaued or I don't feel like I'm seeing as good of results anymore. Or I'm slowing down. That's usually when I dig in and start looking at, all right, let's look at macronutrient makeup because, you know, everybody, like you said at the beginning of this, when you go and you look up information on keto, 
you, you find everybody kind of has a similar journey, it seems like. And everybody who starts keto knows to track their carbs and keep their carbs below 30. And for a lot of people, I mean, if you're coming from, again, 40% body fat, you got 50 pounds to lose, that's going to work. You're going to lose fat, no doubt, doing that. Um, but it's not going to be optimized for putting on muscle or uh, continuing to lose fat once you do lose you know, 10 to 15% body right. fat. That's the other thing that we have to consider is that our nutritional demands do change. So like for you, I know you have a story where you, you've dropped a ton of weight on keto. What, and you've probably found this out you're too, you're, you know, because you self-experiment, but what it took for you to get down to the weight that you're at currently is not going to be the same thing that's going to be required to get you to whatever the next body composition goal you Correct. have is, right? So let's say now you want to pack on 10 pounds of muscle, you know, the under eating your calories and, and keeping protein low and eating under 30 grams of carbs, that's probably not going to be conducive of muscle building. So we also have to be realistic of when it's time to abandon what was working before to try something new to get us where we want to go. Right. Well, and, and you mentioned set point and I want to learn more about that because this is yeah. something that I, I've heard the term thrown around and I want to see and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is not what I think it is. But mm -hmm. I'll tell you real quick my sort of story and mm -hmm. why I asked the, the last question too about genetics and stuff because so I sort like everybody, right? Saw a big dramatic weight loss. I think the first 50 pounds came off yep. relatively quick. I was I was over 300 pounds. I needed it. it my body was happy to get rid of that. Mm -hmm. And then of course that that slope starts to kind of like flatten, you know? Um, I'm not going to use the, the term flatten the curve that has other implications right now, but the, <laughs> the slope started to flatten a little bit. And then, right. you know, the little ups and downs, like it looks like a lightning bolt, you know, there's some little ups and downs. And then I saw another drop. I got to 80 pounds, I think 82 at my lowest. Uh, so fine. Then I was like very happy with that because I, no matter what I did, I just sort of bounced there. I couldn't get past 82. No matter what I did, I felt like I couldn't do it. And I experimented and I tried changing things. I tried being more aggressive. I tried calorie deficits, whatever I did, I couldn't seem to get past 82. So then I kind of was like, you know what? maybe this is me. <laughs> maybe I'm not going to ever be, um, 180 pounds. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just over six feet. So like, I don't think I'll ever be even in the hundreds to be honest. And, um, and, uh, and so I kind of like gave up on that and went into like, well, now I'm just keto. Like I'll probably be the rest of my life because I just feel my best on it. And I'm just going to work on health. Um, and focused more on like the quality of foods that I ate. I stopped tracking. I, I went more just in towards keto for health and have loved it right. ever since. 2020, of course, I went back 22 pounds or something like that. And then restarted this year. Boom, back to 80 pounds down. And like as soon as I hit that 80 pound and is, I don't know if that's the set point, but I'm going to call it that for a second. As soon as I hit that 80 pounds now, it is completely stopped again. <laughs> and right. I'm eating cleaner than I've ever eaten. I'm paying attention to the non-nutritional parts of my life more than I ever have in regards to stress and sleep. I'm exercising for the first time. I didn't lose any weight the first time through exercise. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to walk five miles a day or do my rowing machine five days a week. Like I'm do, I feel like I'm continually doing it right. And no matter what I do, I can't seem to get down to 80 past this 80 general 80 point down. Uh, my words are not working. You know what I'm trying to say? I can't seem yeah. to get past this point. And I always thought I wanted to lose a hundred pounds. Now I know that's an arbitrary number. So like, mm -hmm. I'm very happy with the work that I've done and I'm not, um, I'm very aware. And we talk about in other episodes, a lot about mindset and, um, and self-love and all this stuff. So that's that I understand that I'm still very proud of my 80 pound weight loss, but speaking sort of biologically, 
it just seems like my body is just not interested in going any further down. And I, I would love to dive into that with you and kind of use me as a case study, not specifically, nobody wants to hear like my macros, but is that set point, <laughs> you know, and like, if I really want to push back this, cause this time I haven't made like a crazy effort cause I don't want to get into a, a situation of like deprivation. I've sort of learned mentally for me, like I could probably push myself to a crazy calorie deficit just for the point of weight loss, but I don't think it's going to give me sustainable results. I think I'll probably get right back to where I am today. So if I want to find a relationship around like getting to a hundred pounds down sustainably without like just doing a bunch of soul cycle and starving myself, um, I I definitely am interested in, in some of how you would maybe, you know, educate me on what to do from here. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this is a little bit of a, it'll be a little bit of a winded response because there's a lot to talk about around this. Area. Well, it was a winded question. So, right. <laughs> I can take Go my time. It. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Of uh, course. Yeah. So, you know, first thing you hit the nail on the head with like the self love part two, like losing 80 pounds, no small feet, definitely something to be excited about. And for anybody who's out there listening who's frustrated by being stuck at a plateau or whatever, like you definitely have to start off by loving yourself and, and kudos to you for doing that because there's a lot of people who can't get off the, you know, they can't get off the bus. Like they just, they stay there forever. Maybe they're able to sure. lose 10, 15 pounds, but to lose 80, that means that a lot of, you know, any in losing 30, like whatever, it means that you've taken time to, you know, focus on your nutrition, which already puts you in the top, you know, three, 4% of the world that you're doing that. So that's huge, right? Now, the set point that you're talking about, you know, there's, there's a little bit of science behind this. And one of the things we know is that when we, when our bodies spend a lot of time at a certain body weight or body fat percentage, we really start to settle in at this body fat or body weight. And when we do that, it becomes really, really hard for us to maintain weight loss, not necessarily lose weight. So let's say, you know, you're somebody who you sat at 25% body fat for, you know, a decade. And then all of a sudden you decide you want to lose weight. Uh, it'd be very easy for you to get down to, not very easy, but you can definitely lose body fat, even though that's maybe your set point, you can definitely get down to 18%, maybe lower. Um, but what happens is, is that when we stop, we, or, you know, because of the way we diet nowadays, I put a newsletter out about this recently, but we like to, we treat dieting like a rodeo where it's like, let's hold on for as long as I can before I get bucked off. And, you know, when we treat dieting that way, when we get bucked off, then we do start to creep back towards that set point. And that's for a lot of different reasons. A lot of it's because we have hunger hormones that are stimulating us to eat more food because it's that our body's saying, Hey, this is lower body fat than I'm accustomed to. I'm in low energy status. Um, you know, I need to be eating more. So like our body can put all of these almost self-sabotaging things out there that can make it really hard for us to maintain that weight loss. So there is a little bit of things that go on with the, the body weight set point. Now, what we do know is that science has shown us that you can bust past that and you can reset a body weight set point. And, and so if, if you're somebody who, you know, like I said, your, your body weight set point is, or, or I'm sorry, your body fat percentage set point is 25%. If you can get it down to 18 and you can maintain that for a long period of time and learn how to eat properly at that amount, then you can definitely reset your health and get to you know this point where this now becomes your new body weight set point. Um, and, and that kind of sounds like that's something that may have happened with you, right? Like you were somewhere, you lost 80 pounds, you kind of established this new set point, and then you've hung out there for a little bit. Now, yeah, you know, like I a year say, and a half, yeah. Yeah, like a year and a half. So now 
like I said at the beginning of this, it is possible that this is your body. This is, you know, not everybody's meant to look like uh, LeBron James. Some people are supposed to be uh, a little bit, you know, uh, you know, different body shapes or a little bit higher body fat percentage. That's just something that happens. Um, but sometimes it's that it's time to make an adjustment. Um, you know, if you are, what you're noticing is that you're getting down to, you know, if you, even if you gain 20 pounds, when you go back on what you know works, you get back down to, you know, that 80 pounds down. Like the number, same place. Mm-hmm. Same place every single time. And what's probably happening is that you're eating at macros for that body type, right? So like your macronutrients are conducive of, of you're eating an amount of protein and amount of calories and, and probably fat too. That is, is like, that's for this, this body uh, style or this body weight. Um, so to get you where you want to go, if you want to go further, you're probably going to have to make some adjustments, right? And counterintuitively, sometimes what it is, is it's actually increasing our calorie intake or decreasing how many calories that we're burning in a day. And anybody who's listening to this, who's on the calorie train that thinks that's the most important thing is going to, you know, have my head on a stake, want to go going around mad about this. Um, but it, because I, I will be honest, there's not a ton of science behind this, but I, but I will say from working with people, I find time and time again, People who come to me who have lost 50 pounds, they're stuck. They've been stuck there for a year and a half, a year, six months, whatever. They're eating 1,200 calories. They're doing their soul cycle and their, you know, their elliptical five days a week for an hour. And as soon as we start saying, hey, let's, ta- let's tailor back that cardio a little bit and let's start resistance training. Let's, you know, let's not worry about eating 1,200 calories. Let's start eating more protein and quality foods and get you up to 1,500, 1,600 calories. And every time this happens, it's, you know, eight out of 10 times people start dropping weight again. And this could be for a lot of different reasons. It could be because you're eating more whole foods and that's better. You know, it could be that you're eating more protein and, and you know, you're turning on some fat burning because of the adjustments in your macronutrients. Um, it, there could be a lot of reasons why this is happening. But I think what happens is that when we put our bodies in a state of starvation where we are, you know, under eating calories, where, I mean, if we think about this for a second, if you're eating 1,200 calories a day and you're doing the elliptical every day and you're also burning a ton of calories at rest, your body's in this state of like, you know, can I really burn fat anymore? Like, this seems like a bad idea. Like, what if I run out of energy, right? And I think that's what happens sometimes is that we, we restrict to a point where we can't restrict anymore with our body feeling safe to release body fat and, and right. to trim up. So when we start giving our body more nutrients and we and we kind of put ourselves in a state of abundance rather than a state of restriction, I see a lot that people's weight starts to go down again. So, you know, it's, that's a long-winded way of saying that sometimes it's just an adjustment that's necessary. Sometimes we just have to, you know, what was been working for all this time, we just need to switch it up. Um, you know, I think that, again, when it comes to adjustments, one of the best things we can do when we're stuck at this um, plateau, kind of the probably the three biggest things I would recommend people who are stuck at a plateau to do is, is to one, start doing resistance training if they're not already doing that. Uh, two, to start eating more protein and maybe tailoring their, tapering their fat back if they're eating a very high fat, low carb diet, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting a little bit more protein, a little bit less fat. And then three, looking at maybe some food intolerances. So are you having a lot of dairy? Are you eating a lot of um, you know, processed low carb foods that can be triggering, you know, some gut imbalances or maybe a little inflammation or, or even in some cases, some blood sugar spikes. You know, we know that um, I just put it out again the other day for like the fourth time I've seen somebody post about eat smart sweets and their 
products spiking blood sugar by like 50, 60, 70 points. And they're marketed as a three grams of net carb product. So, you know, there's, know. there's all, there's that to consider too. So, um, but I think, you know, the simple answer for anybody listening is that if you, if you're not eating a whole food, um, version of a keto diet right now, and you're stuck at a plateau, start doing that, eat more red meat, you know, uh, me and my buddy, Alex, we have this little thing that we always joke about. It's just, uh, eat, re- uh, animals and, and plants. That's what you eat, right? You just eat, you know, eat some animals, eat some plants when you do that. Man, that's uh, funny. I literally say to people focus on meat and greens, meat and greens. That's it, man. Meat and greens. That's all I think about. Yeah. I mean, I know like yeah. throw cauliflower and some things in there, but I just think mentally just kind of, it's so much easier to understand keto. If you just talk about it as like meat, greens and fatty sauce. And you right. can make a meal out of that any day of the week, very simply. Meat greens and right. a fatty sauce. Yeah, it's not. It's not about you know. Uh, it's not about you know having to to track your net carbs necessarily, or it's it's right. not about like you know even having to track our calories in some cases. A lot of times when we just eat what we're meant to eat, our bodies just kind of start behaving the way that they should. And you know, I can give an interesting little case study on this too. And, and I hope my friend Alex doesn't mind me sharing this, but I have a friend Alex who. Um, has just really locked in on his health and he's been locked in on his health for years and uh, tracking his macros, working out really hard, um, got down to a, to a point where he felt good, but just was stuck at this, you know, and he was probably, I would say down, I just guessing, you know, 15, 16, 17% body fat. So he was already a pretty lean guy, um, but he really wanted to, to take it a little bit further and he just could not, no matter what he did, similar story to yours where, you know, tr- restricting cardio, um, you know, under 20 grams of net carbs, carb cycling, he'd done it all. And this year, he actually just came up to see me this last weekend. And I saw him and I was like, dude, you're shredded. Like, I mean, he's down at like nine, 10% body fat. I'm like, what, what happened? What did you do to get you there? And he's like, honestly, I just kind of stopped putting as much stress on myself with it. You know, he's like, I, I just, I simplified it and I just started eating real foods. I started, you know, animals and plants. I just started focusing on that. I started focusing on trying to listen to my body a little bit more and, and realizing when I'm hungry versus when I'm not hungry and, and things like that. And, and he was like, it's the craziest thing. I put in all of this effort to try to lose, you know, another 10 to 15 pounds for all these years and could never do it. And as soon as I put in a little bit less effort, it like starts happening. trying so, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. not to say that, you know, Hey, just be lazy and that's going to be the thing that helps you. But sometimes we have to realize that like it's nutrition doesn't have to be this crazy pull out your phone and track your macros every second of yeah. the day and every after every single meal and you know pick up the food label and, and count the carbs to make sure that you're staying below. Sometimes it's just knowing what to eat and not to eat and listening to your body. And yeah. you know, not everybody's ready to go that approach, but if you've been doing keto for five, six, seven, eight months and longer, then I think it's time for you to to kind of take the training wheels off and start focusing on listening to your body and, and almost going into more of this intuitive way of eating rather than, you know, this let's track my macros and calories. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, I think that that also depends, right? Because <laughs> I think there's people who, who need, <laughs> you know, who need structure. There are people who kind of like need uh, a regimen and need structure. And right. there are others where those structures add stress. And to your point earlier, I think we under discuss mental health and, and stress reduction in the discussion of weight loss and diet. And we, we have right. not under discussed it on this podcast, but it is so important because scientifically, uh, my understanding is like the release of cortisol and even adrenaline in very high stress situations is obviously going to put our body into that survival mode. It's going to hold everything for dear life. And that includes right. our body fat. And so um, I, I totally agree with you. And it's interesting, your friend Alex, like kind of when he stopped stressing about it, that's when he pushed past his plateau. It's not that yeah. surprising to hear. 
Um, that's why I said there's other things as a part of my keto journey that I've, I still learn about and like work on every day. And a lot of those have been not diet related, but actually like mental health and wellness and mindset and other things that I never realized were just like so damn important. Um, and, and also tapping into like connecting and understanding ourself and our eating patterns and emotional eating and these other factors that play into this that are non-dietary, I think are, right. are, are really part, uh, a really important part of the journey for, um, a lot of people. Sorry, my phone rang, which is really no, professional, good. right? Um, <laughs> no, I think, I think you're exactly right though. That's, that's a good point that I didn't bring up is that that's the other thing for a lot of people is that sometimes we focus so much on our nutrition, but we're, we're empty in the other areas of our lives, right? We, uh, we still drink alcohol. We don't focus on our sleep. We have no stress management techniques. Uh, we have no hobbies. We have poor relationships. We are addicted to social media, right? Like all of these things are also going to hurt uh, your ability to lose weight. You know, I see there again, just to give an example, Perfect Keto, we just launched a coaching program recently. So we're doing a little bit of, of one-on-one coaching. And I've seen this few clients that have come through who, again, they've done keto for a long period of time. Um, they're, you look at their nutrition and their food logs, and they're just dialed in. They are doing everything perfectly, but they're not losing weight. And then you look into these other areas of their life, and it's like, oh, you're getting four hours of sleep a night. You sit on your phone for two hours a night before you go to bed. You wake up in the morning. You grab a cup of coffee, and you hop in your car you know, with no time to like get ready for the day or, or you know, get your mindset right. Um, you know, you drink alcohol four days a week, you do all these different things. It's like, Hey, let's just try to fix a few of these things. Let's just one at a time, you know, let's, let's focus on sleep. And sometimes just the simplest things, you know, reduce, like you said, reducing stress. Uh, if your cortisol is high, good luck burning fat. It's going to be a lot harder to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if you are getting four hours of sleep every single night, good luck having good digestion so that you can properly, you know, metabolize the food that you're eating. Uh, it's just not going to be the case. So I think that, you know, I think that that component, the lifestyle component is important. I think that a lot of times some people have to just start somewhere. And inevitably, if, you're, if your goal is to lose weight uh, or get healthier, I, I think that nutrition really is one of the biggest levers you can pull. I think it's the thing that can really make the biggest difference. For sure. But we have to, you know, maybe you start there, but eventually we have to kind of round it out and we need to incorporate um, a lot of these other lifestyle changes that's going to really help us round out and, and optimize our health. Um, yeah. But the one thing I well, want to touch on. Oh, go oh, ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say to that point, like there's sometimes these sort of uh, paradoxes, paradoxes <laughs> um, around eating because it, it goes the same way with nutrition, right? Like if okay, let's let me just step back for a second. If you're like I don't know a single mom or dad and you have three kids and a busy job and cooking healthy food, or you're in a financial struggle and buying high quality meats is a stressor for you. I sometimes feel like there's a little bit of a, I guess maybe it's not a paradox, but there's sort of conflicting forces because we want to get rid of the stress, but we also want to make nutrition a priority. And sometimes they go hand in hand really nicely because like as you eat better, you feel better and it all kind of compounds. There's also times when that stresses people out. And like I even think about this with my recipes, like there are times when I put out sort of like fancier kind of chefy foods because yeah. there's people who love that, who want to make food special and who have fun cooking. There's other people where like cooking stresses them out. Right. And so for me, like uh, 
if I can also put out recipes or guidance for people who don't even want it, like, like there's nothing wrong with throwing a pound of ground beef in the frying pan with a little, like a little uh, butter and a little cheese on top and like eating that for dinner. Like you, you right. food doesn't, you know, you have to find what works for you around nutrition and they don't always necessarily align. But um, I think it's an important discussion because sometimes I feel like this, like I've had people write me like, look, I know I'm supposed to be doing grass fed beef. I don't know what to do. I can't afford it. And I'm like, then don't buy it. Right. Like I'd rather you stay happy and keto without grass fed beef or whatever. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, I, I think sure. there has to be balance created, I guess is my point. For sure. Yeah. And the. Figuring out how to make it stress-free is super important because, I mean, we all, everybody listening to this podcast has a stressful life. You know, even people who are good at managing their stress have stressful lives. And, you know, when we have to focus on our nutrition, that becomes a lot harder. Um, Easy for me to sit here and talk about eating well, uh, having no kids or anything like that. A lot harder for them. Like you said, the mom or dad's listening. They're like, yeah, but I got three kids to feed and my life's crazy and stuff like that. So there's definitely a lot going on there. And I think Two of the things that I would say to that, first for just general stress reduction, I think is just trying to learn like the the like the certain approach to starting a keto or any diet, right? Is is I think that sometimes we start too much, right? Where it's like, okay, I'm starting and I'm going to have to go out and meal prep all of my foods. I have to go to the Mm. grocery store. I have to track my my macros and my calories, and I have to count my carbs and all this stuff. And that's way too much. So a lot of times what I tell people, this is kind of my approach to people when they start nutrition. Here's foods to eat. Just focus on eating those. Those are step one. I don't care if you eat 10,000 calories of these foods that I'm telling you to eat. I just want you to eat these foods. And then once we get kind of accustomed to eating those foods, now let's put the training wheels on. Let's look at how much you're eating and let's put the training wheels on and figure out how much you should be eating for your goal. And let's work our way to that point. This is where we start tracking. But the tracking is a lot easier at this point because the the new food and the adjustment to eating this this new diet is is already in the past. You've already done that. And then once we figure out how much to eat and and we learn what a, a typical meal looks like, now we start learning how to intuitively eat where we don't have to track everything, which initially that would be really stressful. But once we have this understanding of, of here, this is what six ounces of protein looks like. This is what right. you know 30 grams of fat looks like. This is what 30 grams of carbs looks like. When you have those those kind of mindset and those understandings, now that becomes a lot less stressful. So I think some of it is people easing their way in and, and getting to a point where, you know, just taking it one step at a time. Like nutrition really is like I, I put I put it in my newsletter the other day when I made that comparison that like uh, nutrition, a lot of people treat it like a rodeo where it's like hold on to the bull as long as you can. And then if you fall off, it's that, oh, I'm back at day zero and I have to start over. Nutrition is a lot more like riding a bike. Right? It's like when you first start, you're going to fall off a ton, but that doesn't mean that everything you did is lost. You just hop back on and then you keep going. And then over time, you become really good at riding the bike and you don't fall off as much. And that's how we should look at nutrition. Mm. It's like it's going to be stressful and hard at the beginning, but if we stick with it, it becomes a lot easier over time. So that's one part of it, right? And then the other part you talk about it is the financial part, right? So when we start introducing finance, like if we have too many stressors in life, it just doesn't work, right? If we have job stress, family stress, financial stress, health stress. That's just too many things, right? So inevitably when you remove some of the stresses, things get better. So like you you briefly mentioned it where some of this works itself out where when you start getting healthier, you start feeling better, you're able to manage stress a little bit more. That does happen. Um, but then there are things like you said financially where it's like people like, okay, hey, I want to eat healthy, but I can't afford that. So, so what do I do? 
And the two things I always say to people is one, there's a difference between not being able to afford something and not thinking that you can afford something. So a lot of times when I'll see people that, you know, they'll say, Hey, eating healthy is it's too expensive. I can't afford it. And then you look at, okay, well, what's your typical grocery store trip look like? Oh, you're buying Pepsi, uh, cans of Pepsi. Oh, you're buying a bunch of chips and pop tarts. Well, I mean, if you're eating pop tarts for breakfast, do you know how much eggs cost? Like they're actually like, when you break it down, like you can eat eggs for a week cheaper cheaper than you can eat pop tarts for a week for breakfast. Right. Um, or are you going out for pizza and drinks two nights a week with your friends? Like, Hey, you put that 40, $50 away. You actually can afford grass fed beef now. So that's only part of the equation. Those are some people who it's just like, you know, they, they could afford it, but they just don't prioritize it. And they're not being real with themselves Fair. and saying, you know, cause like, Fair. and I always go back to my story. Like when I was in grad school, I was broke as heck. I was literally eating like tuna eggs and ground beef for meals. Um, and, and I was able to do it right. It was just that like, I prior that to me, that was more important than, um, you know, going out and getting pizza with my friends or going out and drinking a bunch of beer at the bar. So that's, that's one part. But then there, there actually are the people who, you know, I I can't afford that. Like we actually are eating pretty well right now. Um, I can't afford grass fed beef. We, we just, we, we don't have any extra room in our finances. And for those people, you did hit the nail on the head is that it's just do the best that you can. Um, grass fed meat is great if you can do it. Um, from a health standpoint, I'll be honest, I don't think that it's makes that big of a difference. Um, but from an environmental standpoint, uh, it does make a big difference. So do what you can, right? Like you have to take care of your health right. first. If, if you can't afford grass fed beef or organic vegetables, don't, don't get them, you know, get what you can get that is within your price range. Um, but I'll also put this out there to those people. And this kind of falls in more of to the not thinking you can afford it. If you have a local farmer's market by you, go check it out and look at the price of things. And Hmm. chances are you'll find that things are a lot more affordable than you think. And the reason why is that when you're, when you go to a farmer's market, you're cutting out a whole piece of supply chain. You're cutting out all of the different hands that have to touch food to take it to the grocery store, which makes it a lot more expensive. Me and my wife go to the local farmer's market every Saturday. That's, that's what we do for grocery shopping. We, we wake up in the morning, we go to the farmer's market and we get a whole week's worth of produce for like $11. You know, it's like, like we get out of there with like meat. And, and again, it's only two people here, but with our meat and our vegetables, we're leaving the farmer's market, maybe $60, $70 spent for the week. Um, but that's right. because we're not wasting money on the extra stuff, right? Like we're not buying tortillas and chips and, and pop tarts and stuff like that. Like we're only buying right. the whole real foods. Which, ha- which allows us to get the better stuff. Like we can get grass fed because those extra couple dollars we would be spending on junk food, we can now put towards that. So if you have a local farmer's market, check it out. You actually, I think you'll be surprised that you can get the best quality food for you and the environment for a lot cheaper than what you think. I mean, you're preaching my language right now. Obviously, I'm I'm big into the farmer's market for a lot of reasons, um, including Austin's that. Austin's got some great ones too. So you're Austin's got spot. some great ones. I, yeah. I think most major cities now have come really far with this and even smaller towns now. But I, I also think from a culinary perspective, and this really isn't relevant to the nutrition topic, but I just want to drop this in here because we don't yeah. talk about food that much. But uh, <laughs> you stumble upon fun ingredients when you go to a farmer's market that you may not find at like a regular grocery store and it can be a little bit inspiring i think for a lot of people um just to sort of like play with your cooking and keep food interesting because i think um there are people who think like keto food is boring keto food is just like you know bacon eggs and a and a fatty steak and like you can't and that's good too don't get me wrong but keto food is actually quite beautiful (laughs) um if if you want it to be 
And I've sort of set out with a mission to show that like keto food can be exciting and vibrant and flavorful um, and diverse. And so Mm -hmm. um, farmer's market's a great way to kind of um, expand on your culinary palate as well as get like not only you're supporting local people, you're just supporting local economy and you're getting a better quality food anyway that's probably weeks fresher cheaper like there's just i could go on and on so i appreciate the fact that you said that um well think, I, I, I also mean, you, you bring that up though like think about you know a lot of people who will complain that hey you know keto's too restrictive it's really boring those are the people who last time they tried to get healthy they were eating uh white chicken uh white rice and like a sweet <laughs> potato with no fat on it right it's like Right. Trust me, man. Let me even I'll make you my simplest dish of broccoli with ground beef and some butter in it. And it's going to have a hell of a lot more flavor than that rice and chicken that you were eating before. So yeah. I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, even for somebody like I'm not a culinary expert, I'm the simple guy that you were talking about earlier, where it's like lunch, I'm going to throw ground beef in a pan because that's all that's right. good enough for me. Um, a ton of flavor. It's just it's there's so much you can Super do. Flavor. Fat is a delicious thing. Meat is a delicious thing. Um, you know, for centuries, these these two things have been considered like the delicacies, like the, the ability to, you know, Correct. whoever got to eat like the organ meat or the fattiest cuts and stuff like that. These, these are the most delicious parts. So you actually have the ability to do this on keto, which to me doesn't seem like dieting at all. <laughs> right. Which which really makes me think of what we were talking about earlier. And we were, we were talking about like, you know, uh, I don't remember the language you used, but it was so good. But rather than thinking about restriction, sort of thinking about abundance. <laughs> Abundance. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel very much that way. It's one of the things that I think is really um, unique about keto versus other diets. And why when I talked when I when I mentioned to you that, look, like, sure, I'd love to get to my original goal of 100 pounds down, even though it's an arbitrary number, it just sounds awesome. Uh, But I'm not going to do so because I've come a long way in my journey and a long way in my self acceptance. I am not going to do so by restricting or starving myself or forcing myself because the, I'm not going to ride the bull. Like I'm, I'm not right. going to do that. Right. Because I know what'll happen. I'll hit the hundred pounds. And then two months later, we'll be having this conversation. And I'm like, man, I'm back to 80. You know, like I know what's right. going to happen. I've done this enough with my body. I dieted before finding keto, lost a bunch of weight quickly. Like I don't believe it's th- in this kind of idea of calories in calories out, but I also believe very firmly that if, if, if you're a grown man eating a thousand calories a day, you're going to lose weight (laughs) and probably pretty quickly, but Mm -hmm. it's also going to basically destroy your metabolism, destroy your relationship with food, and then you'll gain it all back. And then some, and we've seen this time and time again in, you know, in television shows and media, like we, we know that that's the result. So I think, um, having a good framework around understanding, like, yeah, yeah. Would I love to get to 100 pounds? Sure, but I'm only gonna do so if it's a place where I think will become my new set point, where like right. I can actually stay at 100 pounds. If it's not, then I'm I feel great where I'm at, you know. And that's a hard decision to come to, and it's taken me a long time to feel that way. Um, but it's definitely an important topic. And and yeah. to your other point around finances, I think it's tricky uh, because. There's a lot of there's a lot of misconceptions that you hear. How often do you hear like keto's expensive? Keto's only expensive if you want it to be. <laughs> like right. I, you'd be surprised how cheap I can eat as well and enjoy it. Even like enjoying chefy food, like taking a bag of spinach and Brussels sprouts from the farmers market for like a dollar and and some gr- good ground beef or ground pork and like 
uh, coconut, a can of coconut cream and like, man, like we're talking like crazy budget items. Yeah. Uh, what you mentioned before around, like if you're getting pop tarts and stuff, I'll be honest, that also applies to keto packaged goods as right. well. Totally. And part of that, I understand why as somebody who's kind of, I'm not well-versed in science, but I am well-versed in the food industry, the ingredients required to make keto food, um, in a commercial setting are very expensive still. Buying sweeteners in bulk, almond flour is very expensive because almonds are an expensive crop. Um, Avocados are expensive. If you're gonna actually make a clean product and use avocado oil in it, it's very expensive. Um, And so I understand why keto products are expensive. However, there's good reason, both financially and nutritionally, to limit that i guess would be the right. word i would use only because of what you're saying like the the best way to eat on keto and the best way for results is through real food as presented to us on planet earth <laughs> not right. uh things that come you know out of a vac sealed package um yeah. that were made three months ago in a factory somewhere um that being said I'm not making commentary on quality because that's a whole other discussion, right? Like there are good keto products and there are really bad ones. And so that's a whole separate discussion. But no matter what, I like how you said that the financial piece behind getting healthy, this is keto or not. It's the same thing in any diet, right? Like if you're, if you want to be vegan, fine. If you're buying expensive fake meat and beyond beef burgers that are like eight dollars for two patties or whatever yeah it's going to be expensive if you saute a one dollar package of tofu with some bok choy for a dollar fifty you know like this this conversation really isn't even about keto this is true in in health and wellness at large um and you see this a lot right like in i would say outside of keto there's a big push around like juices and smoothies let's say inside keto i see a lot of like bulletproof and um, supplementation and things where it's like, those are great tools. And mm-hmm. if you're able to use them, great. Just like gra- grass-fed beef, if you're able to, to to use that, great. At the end of the day though, at least for me, and, and then I'll throw the question to you, but at least for me, I feel like at its fundamental, none of those things are actually required for mm-hmm. keto. That doesn't mean that they don't have value on someone's journey, but they're not a requirement. Um, and, and, and I think that just how you said about prioritization around finances, I think that's true here. Like you can make prioritized decisions. You don't need, um, bulletproof coffee every morning. And you certainly like, if you're going out and buying a fatty coffee from a coffee shop for $6 or whatever, um, that's major, major money at the end of the day. You're ending up spending hundreds of dollars a month. I encourage people to kind of do the math on those like extra things they add in their diet and they're probably just extra calories anyway. So it just seems like, I don't know, silly to me sometimes um, mm-hmm. when people focus on those things, but I, I don't know. How, how do you, how do you see it? Yeah, I think the exact same way. And, you know, I think a lot of times, like sometimes we don't want to like, we'll, we're blind to things that we don't want to look at, right? Like if you love your $6 coffee that you go to every day, you're not going to think about that when you're thinking about what you can and can't afford, right? Because you've put a blind spot in front of that coffee. That's what you do. And and that's fine too, right? Like we all have our things that we like, right? Like that's, I think that that's okay. Um, but I think that sometimes we just have to really take an honest look and, and it does take taking an honest look 
at our like break down yeah. your budget, break down how much money you spend on food over the course of a month. And, and when you actually exactly. look at it, then you can start making adjustments. Now, I will say that I think that some of these foods are, are good transition tools, right? Like if you're coming from the standard American diet and you are very addicted to food, you have cravings all of the time. Um, and you know, people who, who are coming from that stage, those are the people who are most likely to take that rodeo approach of like, I'm going to follow keto for 30 days. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to resist, you know, I'm super motivated to resist all of my cravings and my temptations. But one of the things we know is that motivation is one of the weakest behavior change, um, strategies. We can only stay motivated for so long. And, hmm. and that's why it's like willpower. willpower. It's like willpower. Exactly. Yeah. Like you can tell yourself no for a couple weeks, but what about a couple months? Probably not. Or, or when things get stressful, right. you know, like you have a death in the family or your kids are being crazy or whatever, uh, works stressing you out. Like it's going to become a lot harder. So some of what this is, is again, I think that if you're starting out keto and if you, if we can get you to start eating low carb ice cream over Ben and Jerry's every single night, like we should start there. That's a great we place should. to start. Um, and I think especially yeah. when it comes to things like diabetes, um, I think that these, I mean, that's why sugar-free food products were really invented for diabetes. That, that's kind of why we can't, I mean, erythritol was first studied because of diabetes. We were looking hmm. for alternatives. Now, it is kind of funny when you think about it because it is more of a treating the symptom rather than the cause, right? It's like people are addicted to sweets, so let's just find a different way to give them sweet-tasting food. Uh, but but there is some value, I think, to, to having that to transition people off of. But the point is, is that, again, motivation is a very weak um, strategy when it comes to changing our behavior. So when it comes to changing our behavior, we actually have to incorporate behavior change techniques and we have to change ourselves. We have to change the way that we think about things. You know, I think we, we have to realize that it's not realistic. Like humans shouldn't eat pop tarts and chips and cereals every, every day. That's not normal of a human diet. That's only what's become normal in the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. So again, you talk about the finances part. If you, if you're somebody who eats cereal every day and now you're buying keto cereal, yeah, the keto cereal is going to be three times the cost of your other cereal because like you said, it's more expensive, higher quality ingredients. You know, if you're trying to get keto Pop-Tarts, you know, you're, you're a Pop-Tart guy, you want to eat uh, low-carb Pop-Tarts, going to cost you three times the amount. But when we're talking about let's swap out for whole real keto foods, then the, the expense thing just really isn't there. I think the only people that can make that argument are people who are eating like if you're eating the lowest quality whole foods possible, like you're eating, you know, non-organic um, produce and grain fed meat and stuff like that, and that's all you're eating, then you can make that argument. Like if that's the, the pinnacle of your budget, then first of all, you're already doing a great thing because you're doing the best you can within your budget and you're eating real right. foods. So really no change necessary. Keep it up. But if you're not there and you're eating a lot of these other foods, then m there's something that we can do about it. And, 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 you know, that, that's what I mean is that like, and I get it all the time, right? I always feel bad. Like I put out something on Instagram the other day. I said, you know, it was like misconceptions around nutrition. And one of them was that eating healthy is expensive. And I have, I had all kinds of people, you know, hit me up on that, really upset about it. I know the last time I posted um, anything related to expenses, I had somebody comment saying, you know, you know, oh, it must be nice to, you know, to be so privileged to be able to buy, you know, grass fed meat and all this stuff. And I was kind of, you know, my two responses have always been, one, I was able to eat a whole food keto diet when I was the poorest I've ever been in life, you know, literally making a few hundred dollars a month, um, barely enough to, to pay rent, I was still able to eat keto. Uh, and two, you know, I, I'm, I'm not rolling in it today, I'm, and I'm still able to eat this way, but it's because of the way that I prioritize it. And, you know, and I, I do think that that's an important part of the conversation, too, is that 
not everybody needs to prioritize their diet and their nutrition, you know, as the number one thing in their life. Um, you know, there are other things that are important. And, and even for somebody, you know, being a nutrition guy, I definitely prioritize my nutrition. But there's also times when I don't, you know, like, last week, I was with some friends out in Colorado skiing, it was for a bachelor party, you know, I had some drinks, I ate some food that I wouldn't normally eat, you know, at, at this time, it was more about, you know, hey, let's try some new some local cuisine in Colorado, and, and let's have some fun with my friends. Right. And then when I get back, then it's it's going back to, to living, you know, my, my typical life of prioritizing nutrition. So I think that's the other component of it, too, is that we don't need to be obsessed with our nutrition, we just need to be real that like, we shouldn't make excuses when really, it's, it's kind of right. a, it's an us problem more than it is uh, an actual financial problem or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, I couldn't agree more. In yeah. fact, like, I like what you said at the end there, too, because like, um, you know, I, I would almost rather somebody like not eat organic and grass fed and like just eat really simple food, but then pay for that massage, <laughs> you know, pay, go, right. pay for, you know, yeah. pay for that gym membership or whatever, um, get that personal trainer or whatever. I think that and it goes back to what we said earlier, there's so much more to health and nutrition mm -hmm. than just like, macros per se, not literally, right. but the idea is so much bigger than that. And it's funny because you're talking to a nutritionalist and a chef sitting here telling you it's not all about nutrition and food, right. which is, <laughs> it's, it's funny, but if that doesn't prove what we're saying, you know, what does, I right. think that, I think that says it all. Cause it, it's so fundamental. Food is such a fundamental part of our uh, training and belief system and empowerment in this space. Right. But we're also saying like, Go on that skiing trip, you know? Right. Um, so I, I, I'm really happy to hear you say that. I appreciate that. No, I, I think, <laughs> so I think it's, it's really important. It kind of, I wanted to go back briefly to something you were talking about when you're talking about your own story about, you know, being at that 80 pounds down and thinking about taking it to like that next step, but knowing that it might not be worth it. I think that, you know, again, nutrition is one of the biggest levers we can pull when it comes to improving our health. It's just, it really is. Like if you are, if you're pre-diabetic, which is like over 50% of the population, um, whether or not, you know, this isn't a debate on whether or not carbs cause it or not. We just know that cutting out carbs helps it, right? So we know that there's nutrition. Like, you know, if you have pre-diabetes, getting better sleep isn't going to move the needle as much as cutting carbs out, right? So like at the beginning, when, when we're coming from the standard American diet and our health is, you know, really in the tank, nutrition is a huge focus. And it really should be a, sure. the, the biggest part of our focus. But... And, and, and when you do that, you're going to see big results like you saw. You're going to see 80 pounds down in a year or whatever, and you're going to see these crazy things. And then I think we need to understand that, one, it starts becoming, if we want to take it to the next level, it starts becoming about other things. So let's talk about our lifestyle, stress management, sleep, all of those things that I mentioned. But then, two, it's being realistic that, like, you're not going to lose weight at the same rate that you did before. And and even for you, I would I would kind of challenge you to say that, like, maybe rather than think, like, I, I bet if you stuck with what you know is the best diet for you and you stuck to eating whole foods, I bet over the next five, 10 years, you would get to where you want to be just a hell of a lot slower than what you're hoping for, right? Uh -huh. Like, because you I lost 80 about pounds. That. You know what I mean? Like, you lost 80 pounds, and, and you know, how, how huh. long was it that it took you to lose 80 pounds? One year. One year. So, you lost 80 pounds in a year. You're not going to lose the other 20 pounds in four months, right? Like, it's just, that's just not how it's going to go. But if you stay consistent with it, and you keep eating right. that way. Maybe you drop a half a quarter a pound a month, you know, like that's it. And then, and <laughs> that's what I've, seen. I've even seen that happen with myself, right? Like when I was, um, when I was 
at my heaviest, um, it was like I was eating, you know, I was doing dirty bulking and trying to put on muscle and stuff. And I was up to like 212 pounds and I'm, I'm about six, two, six, three. Um, but it was not a good weight. I was, I was, you know, higher body fat percentage and then, you know, found keto, started getting it down, got down to like 195, 200. And that was my set point for a couple of years. That's really where I just kind of stayed the same. And then over the last like year and a half, two years, no, no macro counting, no calorie tracking, um, not even stepping on a scale just because, you know, weight loss, not necessarily my goal. I've slowly crept down even lower body fat percentage. And, you know, I'm hanging out around like 185 right now, but feeling great, you know, like, um, wasn't intentional. It just kind of happened. You know, I was probably dropping a half a quarter pound, you know, a month for the last couple hmm. of years. And then here I am. So I think that's, that's the other part to it too, is like, you're going to, and it's a good thing that this happens this way somewhat because we need the rapid weight loss. Like, like one of the great things about keto is that you will lose 10 pounds in your first week. And yes, of course, a lot of that is water, but we need to see it. Like we need that immediate feedback that says, Hey, the scale's going in the direction that I want it to. I'm seeing progress. This is a great thing. And same thing for losing 80 pounds in a year. Like we need to see that because that's validation for what we're doing is working. Mm. But then I think it's when we have to like realize that, Hey, I'm not going to continue losing at this rate. It's probably time for me to have a different expectation and realize that let's start adopting lifestyle principles to maintain this long term. Let's get to riding a bike versus, you know, holding on in, in a rodeo. And when we get to that point, then we're going to see that we slowly over time get to where we're trying to go. You just like, you blew my mind with that a minute ago. Cause like, I never, I never thought about that because thinking about weight loss over five or 10 years is not sexy. <laughs> like that is not, you know, like I, I never, and it's funny cause I, I don't know if I've talked about this and, and like, I'll briefly tell you, like I got a message from somebody that was like, um, I'm only down three pounds this month. I'm super frustrated. What am I doing wrong? And I'm like, hold on a second, you know, three pounds in a month is actually quite a lot. If you do that for the next 11 months, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think we, we want to see those sexy results. We want to see those big numbers because we see online, uh, everyone's, especially in the keto world, like everyone's like dramatic before and afters. And I'm, you know, I do it too. I recently posted a before and after and it's dramatic as fuck, right. <laughs> but that didn't happen overnight. And like right. a year when you talk about it in the past doesn't sound long, but when you're living a year of, of focus and, and like really heavy kind of like work, like you're doing the work for one year straight without yeah. skipping a beat, it is a really hard thing. And, um, and it's hard. And so I, you just kind of blew my mind. Cause here I've been saying, you know, I don't know. I just think that's really interesting perspective. It was really easy for me to tell somebody else who said like, well, that's only three pounds, four pounds this month. And I'm like, well, you know, if you do the math, if you lose one pound a week, that's 52 pounds in the year. Um, right. you, and we forget to look at the big picture. And uh, I really appreciate what you just said, even for me. And I hope somebody listening <laughs> feels the right. same way. I never really thought about like, well, in five years, what will I look like if I just sort of keep at it in 10 years? And the other piece of this, as we talk about a lot, is that health is a lot bigger than the number on the scale. Totally. Um, if I looked specifically at like what, I don't remember who puts out the FDA or whoever puts out like the the BMA, the BMI, like uh, obesity scale. I think I'm still obese, but it's ridiculous. And um I don't feel obese. And if you look at my like lab work and numbers, I'm like literally, I'm not flexing. I'm just like bringing up the conversation that like right. cholesterol, blood pressure, uh, you know, blood composition, 
metabolism, thyroid, like everything is right where it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but yet I don't look like the body that we're told is healthy yet or whatever. Um, and so I think that there's a lot more to health than just the weight on the scale. And I just want to add that into the discussion. And that's something that I'm learning too, and like continue to learn. Um, so I want to pivot for a second because as we're talking, my stomach is rumbling and I don't know if it's because of our discussion on, on ground beef. Cause I, it's funny you said that I actually had ground beef. I just sauteed ground beef and some broccoli last night too. I believe it or not, guys, I don't make a five course, uh, (laughs) chef dinner every night for myself. Um, I know it's shocking. Um, but, uh, I bring it up because, um, I've always sort of done intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. Um, but recently I've changed my sleeping habits. I have now switched to, to going to bed very early and waking up very early. I I'm talking two 30 in the morning every day now doing some work, some most productive, and that's a whole other discussion. People think I might not be sleeping, but I'm going to bed at seven o'clock. So I'm still getting a full nights of rest. I'm just on yeah. a different schedule that's working for me. Mm-hmm. However, I love that. I've been awake now, so let's just people won't know, have the reference point, but it's for me 11, 12 in the morning. Okay, 11 a.m., 11, 13 in the morning here in Texas. And uh, I have been awake now for nearly 12 hours now. I've been awake for whatever, nine hours. So even though um, I'm only fasted maybe 18, 19 hours, I've been awake for most of that. And so, um, I'm so hungry right now. So it's just making me think, not that 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 wasn't even a question. I'm just like, I'm just bitching because I'm really hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My question for you is like, I would love to dive in a little bit to fasting. So Mm -hmm. um, I have sort of unbeknownst to me been an intermittent faster my whole life, basically. Even since I was a kid, my mom had to force me to eat breakfast because it's the most important meal of the day, right? Um, right. And I always, I was never hungry, uh, and I'm still not hungry for breakfast most days. It's usually around this time, 11 a.m. or so, that I start getting hungry. Um, <clears throat> I've also found some success doing uh, one long, I've done a few long fasts, especially once a month. I'll do at least at the start of the month, 24 to 48 hour fasts. Um, I've done a few 72 and a little above that before. Um, but I'm going to confess something. I don't know if I really know why. I don't know why I do that. So I, I'm going to pose some questions for you because we hear fasting is a helpful tool. Um, mm-hmm. We hear words like autophagy and things like this going around. I want to be clear that I do not and have never fasted for the mindset of weight loss I feel amazing when I do my long fasts. I get boosts of energy. I feel like it kind of restarts my metabolism in a certain way. I don't know if any of that's based on science, but it's how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would love to ask you sort of both on a fundamental level, and then we'll kind of go back and forth on this a little bit. Let's get into fasting um, and how it can be used on our journey to health a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, fasting has become one of the most you know, popular things. Everybody's talking about it now, obviously with the rise of like keto, keto has made fasting popular, but then fasting has also kind of gone out on its own and spent its own niche, you know, completely irrespective of keto, uh, that a lot of people are doing it. And there's a lot of pros and cons to fasting. Um, you know, I think that when you, when you break it down, I think that there's a lot of benefits to fasting. I think that, you know, fasting is 
it's been therapeutic for, you know, centuries. Like when we go back to even like when you read the Bible, you, you read a lot of um, instances where fasting was used therapeutically. And, you know, even the first treatments for pediatric drug resistant epilepsy was, um, well, actually it was before we even had drugs. It was fasting was a treatment for pediatric epilepsy. Um, mm. Fasting is even where keto was developed out of. We, we, you know, we learned about keto and developed the ketogenic diet from what we knew about fasting for epilepsy. So why? Um, because it would put people in a state of ketosis? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, one of the things mm. that we knew early on was that people when kids and this is something that, again, it even goes back as far as the Bible. But people with epilepsy, when they fast, they see um, they see, you know, complete removal of like, see, maybe not complete removal, but depending on the severity, they see improvements in their their seizures. And, um, you know, one of the problems with the fasting approach for children specifically was that it's hard for children to maintain the proper growth curve when they're not eating. Because mm -hmm. when you're talking about fasting for epilepsy, it's not like intermittent fasting where it's like I'm fasting 16 hours and then I eat a bunch of food in eight hours. It's like, you know, fasting for days, you know, really severe calorie restriction, like maintaining. Sure. And as a kid, if they're not getting like the protein they need for protein synthesis and all that kind of stuff. Like exactly. Problematic. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, eventually they found that this, that a high fat, you know, low protein and, and initially the first keto diet was very, very low protein, but, um, a high fat, low protein, low carb diet induced this very similar state, uh, that fasting does, which is ketosis. So this is one of the reasons why we see fasting and keto go so well together is because they both elicit very similar responses in the body. When we fast and go keto, our blood sugar levels lower, our insulin levels lower, and we get into a state of ketosis. So they, you know, they produce very similar results and inherently they've started to go hand in hand because one, there's a lot of information out there about how you can fast to get yourself into ketosis quicker. So a lot of people use it for that reason. Um, there's also the fact that just naturally when we start a ketogenic diet or a low carb diet, we start having uh, a lot less hunger, uh, a lot less hunger in the morning in general. So, you know, fasting becomes a lot easier. Um, and there's a lot of these benefits, like you said, I'm the same way I do intermittent fasting and it's not for weight loss. It's for, uh, increases in energy and mental focus. I feel incredible when I do it. My energy mm -hmm. levels are better. Um, I feel like I'm not like hungry or worried about food. I'm more in the zone with what I'm doing with work. So that's a lot of the reasons why people are doing it. Now, one of the problems with fasting and, and, you know, to kind of give a, a really basic reason of why fasting is beneficial is when we're talking about intermittent fasting, most of the benefit is in the lowered blood sugar and the increase in ketones or the ketosis that occurs. Um, and as I understand it, just gut health in general, giving our stomach right. to kind of finish digesting what it's, what's it has and stuff. Yeah. Yes. That's a great point. Um, you know, Ben Azadi, who is, uh, if, if nobody follows Ben Azadi keto camp on Instagram, he is, uh, just an awesome resource for information. And he put out a study that was, I think it was from somewhere in Florida where they had like college kids eat like, I think it was mellow mushroom pizza and they tracked, um, digest like gastric emptying. And it took like, you know, 16 or something hours to, to like digest that yeah. meal. So, you know, Ben's point that he always talks about is that when you, if you're constantly eating every two hours or even every, you know, five, six, seven hours, you're, you have this backlog of undigested food that is just, it, that's one, it's a lot of stress on your digestive system, but two, it becomes a lot harder to absorb nutrients out of the food that we're eating when that happens. So, right. um, you know, there is a lot of benefit to giving your digestive system a break. I mean, the, you know, our, our bodily systems age just like our body does. You know, if you're, if you have a lot of like, I'm an athlete, I have a lot of wear and tear on my body from playing sports it's caused a little bit of aging and deterioration in parts of my body. Same thing happens with your digestive system. If it's constantly 
overactive and operating, it's going to age, it's going to wear out, it's not going to work as well. So there is definitely a lot of digestive benefit to giving giving your digestive system a break, right? I, I only brought it up because I think gut health is under-discussed as well. As, totally. It's another topic that I think is under-discussed in the health community. It's so important, totally. um, especially and with like gut inflammation when you get into like Crohn's and IBD and other things like there's, there's, this is a huge topic and I didn't mean to interrupt you, which is sure. something I'm, I'm learning a lot about. Recently. No, you're right. And and to be honest, like gut health is one of those, like, I always like, I, I always find it interesting that, um, that there's a lot of different diets that work, right? Like when you look at, there's, you know, it's something that I've always wondered about, right? It's like, why is it that this diet works and that diet works and they're completely different or they, they're seemingly completely different? You know, why does fasting work, but also eating, you know, a uh, 300 gram carb a day diet work for some people too? And typically it's because most diets have like some characteristics that underlie all of them that they have in common. Usually it has something to do with, you know, a restoration of metabolism, um, getting in, you know, some sort of ketosis or lowering our blood sugar, or improving insulin sensitivity. And gut health is another one of those things. Like most diets that show benefit, it's because you're cutting out some sort of food that is, you know, destructive to your gut and your digestive system, or you're incorporating a food that's, you know, more beneficial to your digestive system or your gut. And we might not think that's the reason why, but it really is. So agreed, like gut health, it's it's at the root of, of most successful nutrition strategies, whether or not you know it. So even, the, and this is the same with fasting. So a lot of benefits to fasting, and there's a lot of reason to do fasting. Now, one of the issues with fasting is that we definitely overuse it. And I would say there's two, two bad parts of fasting. One is that we overuse it, and two, we use it as a crutch sometimes. So one, overusing it is the person who they're eating they're eating a, you know, four hours a day, they're doing a 20 hour fast, um, four hour eating window, how much can you really eat in a four hour eating window? Next thing you know, you're eating, you know, 800 calories for six months and not even realizing it because you're doing this fasting approach. Yeah. And that's something that yeah. I even saw in myself, you know, I did fasting for a year and a half without really tracking my calories. And next thing I know, I looked at them and I was eating like 1400 calories a day, despite the fact that I was, you know, playing two hours of basketball a day and working out, you know, just ne not nearly enough calories for me to be eating. So we can overdo it. And similar to like the example I gave with you earlier is that when we restrict our calories for too long, this can cause our bodies to be in this restricted mode that may make it harder for us to right. lose weight or, or feel comfortable with losing weight. So, you know, well, and, and our bodies adapt. So if, if we right. start getting used our bodies used to 1400 calories a day right. there's going to be a big problem if we stop doing that and go back to 2000 <laughs> we're yeah. going to see a big a big uh weight lane weight gain by the way i i just want to say here like i could have a 1 hour window eating and still do 2000 calories but i'm a very <laughs> special special human being get me to brazilian steakhouse and let's rock and roll um <laughs> i love that yeah but I take, no i i i, I do have know your flavor in my meals i think that might be able to do <laughs> I, I do know what you mean, though. Uh, I think because I'm so hungry talking about this. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, I, I do know other, what you mean, though. Thing as, you know, not only is it the overdoing it, but the, the crutch part, I think, is crucial to point out. Because a lot of times what people do is that they, they use, because they've heard that fasting helps get you back into ketosis or into a deeper state of ketosis, people will fast as an excuse to clean up after a bad day of eating. And which, you know, this can be an okay strategy if it's used periodically, right? Like if you, you know, you have a, like, you know, when I was gone on that bachelor party, I had a couple of days of bad eating. Like I did do some fasting when I came back, but that's a very infrequent thing for me. So, you know, if you're finding yourself every third day or every weekend doing that, 
you know, binging on a bunch of food and then fasting, like this is kind of a binging purging type of approach here. Like you're, you're eating a ton yes. and then you're, you know, you're, you're not eating anything after that. Like not a healthy relationship with food. Right. So yes. that's the other thing too, is that we really need to look at fasting as a tool that we use to, um, to give ourselves health benefits, not as a crutch to clean up after a poor diet. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up because this was what I was going to like kind of challenge with. And, and I think when, when we see fasting as a punishment or as like a, like you said, kind of as like a tool to make up for bad behavior, I think that it again demonizes food mm-hmm. and it, and it plays a lot into the mental piece. I think the other thing is, I think I might've mentioned this too, is like, if you're fasting, I get worried about people who suffer through long fasts just so that they see a drop in the scale. I get really worried about that because I think like depending on the person, it can be a a disordered eating um, trigger and can lead to some some really bad relationship stuff. Um, And also like, you know, I do on my long fast, I used to check the scale more just out of curiosity when I would fast and I would notice like I would see a quick drop in the first day or two, but then it would actually start to level off or rise even. And and I think when people fast for weight loss, it's a very dangerous, slippery slope. Um, And then I, I have a feeling when you're when you're off of your fast and you're back to eating, your body's probably just going to like suck all of that up. And so I, I worry about that as a mentality too. So I'm really totally. happy you brought that up. But I love that. I being- love that up though. I think that that's, that's a super important thing to, to point out though, because we, that's kind of become what fasting, that's like most people's mindset on fasting, right? Is that like, yeah. we should just, we should restrict ourselves and it's going to help lead to weight loss. Like we look at it as a weight loss strategy and it is a weight loss strategy, but it's not a short-term weight loss strategy. Like the benefit, right. the short-term weight loss that you're seeing on fasting is not fat loss. You're, you're losing water. That's what happens. Like right. if you don't fast for 16 hours, your insulin levels right. go down, you release some water, that scale changes. And when you eat food, you know, even low carb foods, you're still going to have a little bit of water retention and that weight's going to come back. So if we look at it like that, we're just going to have this constant frustration of the scale. And that's why we shouldn't weigh ourselves every day, right? Like we should weigh ourselves, you know, once a week at the most. And for most people, probably yeah. even less frequently than that. Or maybe never. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the short-term benefit of fasting is not in the weight loss. The long-term, right. if you adopt intermittent fasting over, you know, months, you're going to see easier weight loss, but it's not necessarily because you're not eating as many calories. It's because you're restoring your mitochondrial function. You're improving your body's ability to metabolize fat. You're restoring your digestive system. You're doing all of these. It's, it's a repairing technique. So the short-term benefits that you get are going to be ketosis related. It's going to be mental clarity, more energy, um, different things like that from the state of ketosis you're inducing. The long-term benefits are going to be from the restoration of different, you know, physiological systems in our body. And that's where we're going to experience weight loss. So mm-hmm. I love that you brought that up because I'd never thought about that mindset from people, how some people are looking at the scale on the day that they're fasting, thinking that that's weight loss is, is like, it's a good thing. And that's it's like, you know, they're burning fat and everything. And it's like, no, we need to realize that like the, the short-term benefits, not weight loss when we're fasting. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's tricky because like, you know, we're, we're all finding these tools and stuff. And um, I, I just think it's important to provide education, which is why I brought this up. Cause like, I, I think we're kind of saying what fasting is not, but I also want 
to reiterate that fasting can be a powerful tool as well. And so just sort of definition wise, we hear this term autophagy being thrown around in the fasting world. Uh, Give me a school me a little bit. What does that actually mean? Yeah. So, you know, I will say I'm not, not an expert in the autophagy. And, and one of the challenges with autophagy is that we don't have any great way of measuring autophagy. So when people say, you know, people want to know, can I have this during my fast if my goal is autophagy? We have no idea. We, we really don't yeah. know. We don't know. You know, we have ideas and stuff. Um, but essentially what autophagy is, is it's a type of um, it's a type of cell recycling that occurs in our body where we kill off um, either potentially cancerous cells or just cells that are damaged and no longer serve a purpose to our body. So, um, you know, our body has all sorts of different, you know, immune functions that have the responsibility of doing this. Uh, but we know that when we fast over time, uh, especially extended fasts, um, we can really isolate some of these. Um, typically, it's the precancerous cells or just the, the genetically damaged cells that need to be recycled out of our body. Um, this can happen during this process of autophagy. And you know, some really great minds out there like Dr. Thomas Seafried um, from Boston College, who is the, uh, the leader when it comes to keto and low-carb dieting for cancer, um, he recommends that you know once a year, once a quarter, I'm sorry, that people do some sort of extended fast as a way to kind of um, preemptively kill off precancerous cells, right? So, um, hmm. but the important thing to distinguish here is that to get autophagy, like I said, we don't have a great measurement of it, but this isn't happening during intermittent fasting. This isn't something that's going to happen no. during hour fast. Well, uh, no, and and to that point, I just have to point out, I hadn't really thought about this, but there's um, a common app that people use for fasting, especially long fasting. And it's, yep. sort of, I don't know if you know the Life app, but it's sort of funny because it's like a little like speedometer. And at like one point, it's just like, you're in autophagy. And I'm like, <laughs> I've always kind of wondered like, mm. <laughs> right. that seems a little buzzy for me. Like... I, you know, what does that really mean? And how the hell do they know what's actually happening in my body? It's not like at exactly this amount of time, everyone's just magically, uh, their cells just magically start regenerating or whatever. So I I think it's funny when some of these flashy terms uh, start to become more mainstream in the, in the vernacular. Um, so I'm glad you kind of took a second to explain that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's huge because, and you know, I, I haven't used that app, but you know, I, I know that some of the benefits of that is that you're, you're gamifying the app, which makes it a little bit, you know, easier for people to stick yeah. to it. And let's be honest, like if you had an app that said, well, you might be in autophagy right now, but we're not really sure. <laughs> like, you're like, well, screw this app. So right. I get why they're, they're doing it the way that they're doing it. But you're right. Like a lot, there's so many recommendations out there of like, you know, this is how long you need to fast to achieve autophagy or, or even the things like this is what the optimal ketone level is that you hear people recommend all the time. We don't have that information. Um, a lot of that's individualized. There's just too much to consider. Even the autophagy one too. I mean, when we consider like the amount of time it would take me to get into a, a state of autophagy is going to be a lot different than somebody like Dr. D'Augustino, who is like probably the most metabolically flexible human on the planet um, versus somebody who is severely insulin resistant, right? Like we're all going to have, it's going to mm-hmm. take us different times to get our insulin levels down and our blood sugar down and our ketone levels up and, and just get our bodies in a position where autophagy could occur. So really hard to make generalized recommendations on it. But I will say that I think that Dr. Seafried kind of hit the nail on the head that like three to five days of, of strict water, you know, water only fasting, maybe some electrolytes um, is going to be a good way to ensure that some sort of autophagy is going on. Uh, but it is important to point out that this is not 
if you've never fasted before, this is not day one fasting. Three, three to five days of fasting. I was literally um, about to say that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not safe. Like, we have plenty of data that's fasting safe. And, you know, there's studies back in the day of, like, guys, a guy who, you know, fasted for 365 days and was completely fine. Because, you know, if your body fat percentage is high enough, you really have plenty of fuel to make that happen. But there's a lot of reasons not to do that. One, you know, you can go hypoglycemic and something could happen. Um, two, it's just not a very good lifestyle or, uh, you know, not, not a very good relationship with right. food to just be fasting all the time and not eating. Um, and three, sometimes it puts too much of an emphasis on what we're not eating versus on what we are eating, which I think we need to find like a good balance there as well. Um, so right. well, and just because our body can survive doesn't mean we should necessarily, right. Right. Um, exactly. but yeah. I mean, we can survive sitting in the sun for like 12 hours baking, but we might not be the best thing right. for us to do. You're right. Right, so, exactly. Um, and that's the other part too, is that like, you know, this fasting is very much like resistance training. It's a, it's a, you hear hormesis, people throw this term around. It's, uh, it's an adaptive stress. It's like when we work out, like when you train, you are putting a stress on your body. Like if, let's say, you know, you're doing bicep curls and you want to get bigger biceps, like you have to put a load on that's going to put a stress on that muscle so it adapts. And this is very similar to what fasting is, is you are putting a, it is a stress on your body that, but it's a stress that we, we do, we push it to the right level so that our body adapts and we see some benefit from it, but then we scale it back. But just like training where, you know, if you were to exercise every single day, all of the time and never take a day off, you would overtrain, you would overstress your body, you would have hypercortisol responses, uh, and it would be counterproductive. You'd increase your risk of injury. Same thing with fasting. If we're always fasting and that's, we never take a break from it and it's every single day and super long extended fasts, then that stress level is going to be pushed to the point of it being actually damaging or, um, or just not as beneficial. So that is something that we need to consider too, is that like, if you, if you're new to fasting, let's, you know, when I first started fasting, I was in grad school and I started with 12 hours and that was a big deal for me because I was somebody my whole life. I woke up, I ate breakfast first thing in the morning. So for me to go from eight to eight without fasting or without eating, that was hard. And then, you know, going from 8 PM to 10 AM, that was tough. And then getting to 12. And then, you know, eventually I got to a point where I was like, Oh, I really like that, you know, 12 to two o'clock area for like my first meal of the day. So that's, I think that's where people need to start. And then once I got to the point of like, okay, I can handle 16 hours, no problem. Let's try a 24 hour fast. And I did that a couple weeks in a row. I would just do like on Mondays, I was doing like the, um, Mike Mutzel had this thing like metabolic Mondays where you would fast 24 hours on Monday. And I did that a couple times and I was like, Hey, you know, 24 hour fast, not so bad. Let's try 48. Um, so that if you want to do the long fasting, which again, you, you brought this up at the very beginning when we talked about fasting, it's not necessarily a requirement. It's not something that we have to do, but if you're convinced that you want to do it and you see some benefits or you think it'd be a good fit for you, start slow and work your way up over time, I think is the best way. Totally agree. It's like marathon training or something. No one's yeah. getting out of bed and running a marathon the first no. time. Um, it, it's so, so, so true. And, um, I, I love that you brought that up because I think that there's, um, uh, a lot of people like I, I've talked to friends who are not keto and I've heard many times like I could never go keto. I need my bread. OK, there's also yeah. a lot of people who like say like I could never fast because I need to eat every few hours or right. I get hangry. And I think to some extent that's like they've already made it up in their mind. So therefore it's true. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I also think there's some 
biological reasons perhaps for that. And here we go. It depends a little bit on like glucose regulation, right? Like there's people in my life, specifically my partner, where it's like, if, if they're not fed every once in a while, like their, their, their glucose levels seem to spike a lot more dramatically than mine. I don't know. I don't know how that may have compared before I was keto. And we sort of know that going into a low carb diet, you're going to obviously improve your glucose regulation, but there are biological reasons for some people that may have a harder time fasting. But I also agree with you wholeheartedly that like, it's something that you can train for if you're very interested in it. Uh, Just know why you're training for it. (laughs) You know, just like understand. That's why I wanted to bring it up today because, um, I think we should be educated around it. We shouldn't fast just because we see all the other influencers on Instagram fasting or whatever, you know, uh, we shouldn't fast because some like meme told you to some infographic said to, we should fast because we really know why. Um, Mm -hmm. and that it is a powerful tool for many people. Like I know for me, there's a part of fasting and it's very personal. I'll get for a second, but like for me, and this isn't scientific, um, but Part of my struggle with with my whole weight gain and weight loss journey is is working on my relationship with food. Mm -hmm. And for me, the end of a fast where I feel like I was in charge of myself, I was in control, um, is very empowering for me. It shows me that I'm in charge of my body and my eating habits. So that, that again, that's, that's not, there's no science behind what I'm saying, but do you know what I'm trying to say? It's empowering for me to fast. It reminds me every month, like, no, Mike, food doesn't run you. You eat when you want to, because you're hungry. So there's Mm -hmm. sort of that emotional psychological piece to fasting for me that I find valuable. Um, And then there's also like, if you've done a long fast, you go through these ebbs and flows, right? Of like cravings yeah. and feeling energy boosts. Um, but I'll tell you one thing, like when I'm fasting, I'm not craving Oreos. Right. <laughs> like I'm craving olives and a piece of steak. And like, right. it sort of brings out the animal in me a little bit, right? And it's like, it reminds me of like what I actually want, not things that like the drugs in my brain were telling me around food. So. I think that there's a lot of powerful stuff around fasting if you're aware and educated and choiceful and like intentional about it, but it's not for everybody at all. Mm -hmm. And I think it can be dangerous. In fact, especially mentally and emotionally dangerous, um, for certain people as well. So being really conscious of that is important. Yeah. And I really like that you brought up the the control part too, because, you know, and and I think that actually introduces another way we can look at fasting too. Like if if you're new to fasting, it doesn't necessarily have to be that you don't eat, um, you know, 10, 12 hours, you know, in the morning or or after your first meal. Sometimes a great way to start fasting is is, is developing control between your meals. So, you know, maybe you Mm. still eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but you don't do a ton of snacking between, you know, it's, it's getting comfortable with going three, four, five hours in between meals without eating and having control. Because you're right. I mean, and this is something that we all are faced with today. We live in a society that has created really hyper palatable, addicting foods. Um, and you know, very easily accessible too, like at everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very cheap. Um, and very ridden with carbohydrates, which causes these big blood sugar fluctuations that are conducive of, of more hunger and cravings. So, you know, we are in the situation where it, it is really hard to have, feel like you have control. A lot of us are operating day to day, 
um, just on a whim, right? It's just like, oh, I'm driving to work and I'm craving a taco, so I'm going to stop at Taco Bell or, you know, I'm craving a, a candy bar. I'm going to pop through the, the gas station. And some people just operate without even thinking about it. So definitely getting some control of like, you know, hey, I don't have to eat all the time and, and I don't need to eat in between meals and I don't have to wake up and start my day with this. Um, it's super empowering feeling. And when you think about it from a practical standpoint, it's like, wouldn't it be nice to when you're on vacation with your family or you're traveling somewhere uh, to be energized and feeling great when you can't have food versus being hangry and upset and low energy when it happens. Like, you know, wouldn't it be great to under situations where other people are struck? Like, you know, I tell all the time, like I'll be out, you know, with friends and stuff uh, on a trip somewhere and it's like they go three, four hours without eating and they're just like, they're moody and tired. And I'm like, Hey, let's go. I feel great. You know, this is getting better with time, you know, the longer I don't eat. So I think that's another point too. Like, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be somebody who is a little bit different from the rest of society and doesn't have to, you know, we're not living off of a whim and we're not just, you know, waiting for that next craving wave to hit us and then just falling victim to whatever's around us. You know, wouldn't it be good to feel like we're in control of, of when we eat and how much we eat and what we eat? And, uh, and I think that fasting is a really good way to start developing that control. So I love that you brought that up. That's kind of another thing that I hadn't thought of. Awesome. Well, it's, it's funny, like long before I was keto, I was in Thailand, I think it was Thailand and there was like, a, I was at a temple and like, uh, I remember that, uh, being explained like the, the monks here only eat once a week. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. What? <laughs> it's like the monks eat once a week. What do you mean? Like, hold, hold on a second. What does that even mean? How are they alive? First of all. But, um, part of it is like enlightenment, right? Like it's like, it's showing a true devotion uh, to themselves and to their belief system. The right. other part of it is that that once a week, um, that, that one day a week where they eat, they basically like eat a very special meal all day together. Or I don't know if it's all day, but they eat a very special meal. They do it all together. It's very ritual. It's very beautiful. And part of it is also just around like really appreciating the food. I think mm-hmm. a lot of times we, we eat when we don't even we might be a little hungry, but we're not like really hungry. Like mm-hmm. when you do a fast, you realize what real hunger is. Um, and so like kind of having that appreciation for the meal you get to eat after a fast is also really cool. Like I remember yeah. the first 24 hour fast I did. And again, this isn't the right way to do it, but I went to like a um, Taiwanese hot pot place. It's just like broth and you dip raw meat in and it cooks in the broth if, if for people don't know. Um nice. It was like the best meal of my life. <laughs> you know, it was like my first 24 hour fast, which to me is funny because now like 24 hour fast isn't a big deal to me because we've trained for the marathon. Right. But I remember it was like the hardest thing I've ever done. And then it was the best meal of my fucking life. Ooh, so, yeah. uh, you know, it probably wasn't actually any, you know, it's not it wasn't the meal, so to speak. Right. But um, what I wanted to crave was like, spicy broth and meat that was what i was like the most delicious thing i'd ever tasted and i had such an appreciation for it and so i think gaining control um of cravings and kind of knowing what real hunger is so that it kind of helps us identify like am i actually hungry right now it gives us like that moment of pause these are all little tools that are non nutritional but are sort of like mental and psychological that we can carry with us and and so I, I definitely I try not to like give too much opinion on this podcast because I, I I'm not here to like sell an agenda or anything. Yeah. Um, 
but I do think it's one of the many tools that can be used for certain people. It depends. Yeah, <laughs> so with right, that, right. um, I, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll kick you out of here. I, <laughs> I just thought this call was absolutely amazing. I'd love to have you back. There's so many topics I could probably talk with you for like hours and hours. We're at like an over an hour and a half already. So <laughs> I am going to sort of abruptly end it. Um, yeah. And maybe it's just because I need lunch, but I love you, buddy. I really appreciate what you do. Um, guys, I think your website is theketologist.com and you're yeah. the ketologist on socials as well. You do some really amazing stuff. Um, you. your, your resources are fantastic. Definitely go grab the book. Um, it's sold anywhere, right? Amazon and all that. Amazon is the primary spot. Yeah. So that'd be, be the best place to get it. Yep. Uh, Chris Irvin, thank you so much, guys. Make sure you're following him. Uh, there's just so much knowledge coming from his direction. So I really do appreciate your time and for sharing. Um, hope to have you back for next season. This was, this was really cool. Yeah. Excited to come back on, man. I'm always down for another one. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Today, I'm, I'm mad because I'm mad at you a little bit though, because you kind of like moved out from, you left Austin, like <laughs> basically a few months after I got here, it was like re- quarantine hit. We were supposed to meet up. Yep. And then we were both like going crazy like the first couple months and then COVID hit and then you left. So I never got a chance to have that coffee with you. You have my word. We're going to do that coffee uh, sometime soon. Uh, I'll be out and, in and soon so we can do it then. Nice, nice, nice. Well, we're, we're definitely doing it. I appreciate your time today. Uh, hey, guys, definitely stick with me. I'm going to I'm going to kick him off the camera and then we'll do a little bonus episode here where I break down some of what we talked about um, on our bonus episode over at Patreon dot com slash chef michael make sure to stick around for that thank you so much to our sponsor redmond salt for providing support for this podcast definitely check out their products if you don't already know them you probably do but redmond salt is amazing i use it in all my cooking and it's got all these trace minerals go to redmond.life and put in the code chef michael for 15 percent off you can also find it at your grocery store which is kind of cool um and if you haven't yet maybe consider grabbing yourself a copy of my cookbook New Keto Cooking, anywhere books are sold. Uh, it really does take a new approach to keto food where kind of like what Chris and I were saying, it's really just focus on real clean eating, meat, greens, and a good old sauce, real delicious keto food that is not going to bore you. So <laughs> that's what my book is about. I hope you'll grab yourself a copy and I'll see you guys after this on Patreon and I'll see you next episode. Bye. Bye.